Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Yeah, and it's always been fun being a real-time, like, actually in the world doctor, and uh, a day like today is definitely a day when it's fun, in quotes. So today has been quite busy at the hospital. I had a couple of patients come through the emergency room last night with kidney stones. So I thought, ah, it's summer. It got really hot the last 48 hours. I should remind people about the fact that people sweat. And when you sweat, you lose water. If you don't compensate by really pushing your fluids, well, you can get precipitation of crystals in your urine. And those little crystals, probably a microbiome effect, if the truth be told, but uh, those little crystals will sometimes actually turn into big crystals and into small rocks and clog up your plumbing. And just like my house, which is on lovely artesian well water, chock full of minerals, you get mineral deposits. Uh, uh, in the case of humans, you get them in the kidney and you sometimes get little chunks of them breaking off and finding their way down into the ureter, the tube that connects the kidney to the bladder. Sometimes they'll get stuck in the ureter and keep growing, keep accreting, so to speak, just like those deposits on your faucets, until we finally need to do something about them. Now, all of, almost all kidney stones, uh, with a couple of rare exceptions, contain calcium. But there are a bunch of different types of uh, calcium stones. You can get calcium urate stones. You can get uh, calcium oxalate, which is found in a lot of vegetables, particularly spinach, by the way. Oxalic acid, high, wonderful in spinach, wonderful in many ways, but definitely contributes to kidney stones. Cysteine, which is an amino acid, can also complex with calcium to form kidney stones. And you can trigger uric acid stones, oddly enough, with high doses of vitamin C. I found that out because I... Uh, once had a patient who had a drug problem, and one of the ways he got his opiate prescription was by giving himself kidney stones by taking massive quantities of vitamin C. In his case, that would precipitate a uric acid stone, and he'd really have blood in his urine, and he'd really have a kidney stone, and he essentially persuaded the doctors to give him opiates. And indeed, sometimes the pain is so severe from kidney stones that you do want opiates, and they are appropriate in that circumstance. A lot of people don't even know what a kidney stone is supposed to feel like. Uh, typically, and some kidney stones, like for example, one of the people that I admit, admitted last night, uh, didn't read the textbook, so his kidney stone was not hurting him, but it was blocking a ureter asymptomatically uh, it, until it got infected, and then he got a very, very bad serious infection, which we are currently treating, and he seems to be doing very well. So, phew, but renal colic usually is a little bit like labor pain. In fact, people who've had both tell me they're about similar in terms of severity. They 
also resemble each other in the fact that they are both caused by smooth muscle contraction. And as such, they tend to contract in a kind of spasmodic rhythmic fashion and then tire out and rest for a while and then start all over again. In the case of kidney stones, due to a some uh, an interesting artifact of embryology, when the stone gets within the ureter and is passing down between the kidney and the bladder, people will get pain on that side, usually uh, in the underarm at the bottom of the rib cage and some and around to the back. But uh, it will radiate to their testicles or vulva. So if you get sudden back pain uh, and it's hitting your genital area, were you male or female, you need to think, ah, this is the wiring diagram of the ureter, and therefore I probably have a stone. People with stones also often have nausea, with or without vomiting, and sometimes they can actually get uh, bowel symptoms. So they'll have uh, spasms in the bowel, sometimes even diarrhea, which can be very confusing, which is why these don't always get diagnosed in a timely fashion. Now, in the olden days, before there was a CT scan and a tech to run it in every emergency room in the country, it sometimes took a while to figure out what was going on. Not all stones are obliging enough to cause hydrourator, something uh, basically, if you've got a blockage in the tube, then the urine keeps getting made by the kidney, and so the It backs up like a traffic jam, and you can see the enlargement of the ureter, and that's your clue. Often you'll also see blood, and sometimes one of my two patients actually had brown urine about a week before she presented with her stone, and at the time we did not figure out that that brown urine was uh, actually from a kidney stone because that's an unusual presentation, and she didn't have any pain. So what do we typically do for these. I've mentioned that CT has become the sort of diagnosis of choice. Part of that's because we can measure the stones if we have a CT. And lucky number seven, if the stone is under seven millimeters, it's likely to be able to squeeze through that tube and make its way into the bladder, at which point you have delivered your baby and you will no longer have labor pains. But if it doesn't make it there and gets stuck, then we have a variety of surgical procedures and other procedures. Uh, The nephrologists uh, get quite busy in the summer and lose a lot of sleep because they end up doing a lot of these uh, procedures for kidney stones. We also have the extracorporeal shockwave lithotripsy, which is kind of a trip uh, Litho is, I believe, Greek for stone. So, oh, and by the way, fun, fun, trivial uh, digression. One of the things in the Hippocratic Oath that we all take, or some version of it, when we uh, become doctors, is we promise not to cut out kidney stones. So I guess if you're a nephrologist, you get a pass. And the reason that's in the Hippocratic Oath is that back in ancient Greece, We didn't have any anesthesia, and people usually died, but they were in such terrible pain and suffering from the recurrent kidney stone attacks that doctors still attempted it. It was a bad idea, so making people vow not to do it, no matter how much they yelled and screamed and begged, was actually a good thing. I just think that's fun trivia. 
Rarely do we have to actually cut for the stone, as the Hippocratic Oath puts it. Instead, we use intraurethral procedures or we use sound waves, drop the person in the equivalent of a barrel of water and then and then expose them to a sudden sharp sound wave. And that goes all the way through them and in the process vibrates the stone and causes the stone to break up into fragments. Sometimes they have to hit you more than once. It's not fun. People usually are under um, mild to moderate anesthesia for this process. Uh, It's kind of hard to sit still for a kidney stone, and it's hard to sit still for the shockwave lithotripsy. But overall, you've got to get that blockage out because the back pressure will eventually damage the kidneys. So, What are you going to do? Well, for one thing, you're going to hydrate like crazy, and I don't recommend using high oxalate greens like spinach in your shake every morning. The most important thing is hydration. People who have these unusual kind of kidney stones have to take additional dietary measures. Taking large amounts of oral calcium does increase your chance of getting a kidney stone a little bit. You probably have to go above 800 milligrams a day, plus have a fair amount of calcium in your diet to trigger a kidney stone. But nevertheless, uh, in the summer, you could skip your calcium if you know you're going to have trouble hydrating because maybe you're making a long airplane trip and you're concerned about bathroom privileges when you fly, as uh, we all should be. So while we're on the subject of kidneys, I want to complain or gripe a little bit about this chronic kidney disease threshold. So anybody who's gotten a basic chemistry panel or um, a complete metabolic panel for their physical will have probably read through it and noticed this this uh, thing where they talk about the uh, GFR, the glomerular filtration rate, and there's a line saying, you know, African-American GFR and non-African-American GFR, and then if it's above 60, you're considered to be fine, and if it's below 60, you automatically fall into stage 3 kidney disease, uh, stage 3 chronic kidney disease. This is a fixed threshold. And people come in all sizes and shapes, and that's part of the problem here, is that by having a fixed threshold, we overdiagnose a lot of older people. And what's the whole point of having a GFR? Well, there's really two reasons to bother to put this information where the doctor can see it. One of which is, if you're giving someone a drug that is excreted by the kidney, then you'd probably want to think about changing the dose or giving a lower dose in someone who had impaired kidney function. But the other reason for doing this is because it's supposed to have predictive value, telling you what the person's risk for kidney failure is. And this is where we run into a problem, because pretty much by definition, if you're above 70, you're going to have a lot of older people who are categorized as having stage three chronic kidney disease. And that's a scary diagnosis, not to mention a diagnosis that leads to, well, among other things, increased health care costs because you're getting sent off to a specialist 
to monitor you. And they're, once you send them, they're going to see you once a year, whether you're deteriorating or not, because they're kind of on the hook for that. Canada, uh, the Canadians are always so practical. They're like, hmm, can we make this better? So they did a study where instead of just using this threshold of 60, like we use in the United States, they set up age-adapted thresholds. And so they said, if you're under 40, your GFR should be 75 or above, or there's something wrong with your kidneys, and we want to take a look at you. If you're between 40 and 64, then it should be above 60, which is the thing we've been using. And if you're above 65, it should be above 45. And we're going to let you be in the 50 range without freaking out and see what happens. So first of all, they found that in older people above 65, the number of people who were diagnosed with stage three renal failure was three times less. So it was uh, 2,300 using the the static number. And if you use the age-adjusted number, it turned out to be 700 people. And this is per 100,000 person years in that age cohort. So epidemiology, always per 100,000 something. What they found was that using the fixed threshold, the incidence of kidney failure was much lower in the young people. But, and this is important, the younger people were being missed. So people who had the potential for developing kidney failure, but because their reserve was better, they were able to look normal, but they were low normal for their age. So once you change it to an age-adjusted thing, then they were really abnormal and they got their renal consult and their uh, potential of progression to true kidney failure could be identified and dealt with. So what they said was about 75% of people who were coming in as having stage three kidney disease had no increased risk for kidney failure or death. And what you had to do was say, okay, you've got this threshold above 45, but below 60. Do you have any protein in your urine? And if they had no or just trace protein in their urine, they were fine. They were just age normal and a whole bunch of stuff didn't have to be done and a whole bunch of CYA didn't have to happen and a whole bunch of money was saved. And of course, given that in Canada, they have a somewhat rational approach to spending money on healthcare, which is to say it actually has to benefit somebody. Yeah, good stuff. So we're going to move to um, Mark in Santa Cruz, who sent a question this week to us at AskDrDawn.com using the Contact Us box. Getting back to Mark's question. Hi, Dr. Dawn. First, please let me thank you for many years, parentheses, decades of informative and frequently actionable information. You've made a difference in my life. Well, thank you, Mark. I'm glad to hear it. I read about a paper published last week in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition titled Dairy Foods, Calcium Intakes, and the Risk of Incident Prostate Cancer in Adventist Health Study 2. This got my attention, as I'm a 65-year-old man who has for many years enjoyed yogurt as a centerpiece of my breakfast. After reading an article about this study on the website for Loma Linda University, where the principal investigator teaches, I'm wondering if my daily bowl of yogurt, most often homemade from organic 2% milk, this is Santa Cruz after all, uh, with fruit, 
is an inadvisable choice. I'd welcome any thoughts you have on this topic. Thanks again for all your good words. Well, Mark, let's start with uh, just going through that study. It's a strong study in some ways, but a weak study in others. So I want to talk about that for a moment. It's a dietary study of Seventh-day Adventist men, and also uh, they have some kind of control group, but 28,000 North American men with a wide range of dairy and calcium exposure, all of whom were initially free of cancer. They did food frequency questionnaires and repeated 24-hour recalls. They had a baseline questionnaire that got all kinds of background information on them. And then they used cancer state registries to follow up on the prostate cancer status for up to about eight years. By the end of the study period, they had uh, roughly 1,200 new prostate cancers among participants. And so they went back and they separated non-dairy calcium intake, like nuts, seeds, green vegetables like broccoli, uh, beans, etc., from dairy foods intake. And they used a statistical model on the intake of uh, dairy foods. They wanted to see if there was a risk an additional risk from dairy foods. And what they saw was that indeed there was a increase in men who consumed, let's see, one and three quarters of milk per day had a 25% increased risk of prostate cancer compared to men who, who consumed only half a cup of milk per week. When they compared them to uh, men with zero dairy and their uh, diet, they had an even greater relative risk. It seems like, however, it's not just more is worse. When they did some fine-tuning on the study, they found that if you get above 150 grams, which is two-thirds of a cup of milk per day, that's it. You're in the high-risk group. So that's already about what one might be consuming with yogurt. But before we get too worried about this, uh, I want to tell you that we probably need to replay this study with a little bit more analysis because there's a very there are very significant differences between fermented milk products like cheese and yogurt and fresh milk products. Uh, one other take home from this is it did not matter how much fat you were drinking. Now I saw a patient the other day for his physical who drinks milk is one of his major beverages. He probably drinks 16 to 22 ounces of milk a day, and I was concerned because I felt his lipids were unfavorable. And even if you're drinking 2%, that's still a lot of milk fat, plus it's plenty of milk sugar, and that's going to tend to raise your bad cholesterol. So we had a little talk about that, and we'll see what happens, and whether he'll make a change over to nut milks, which, according to this Loma Linda study, would be better. So getting back to our emailer, Mark's question, maybe a different type of fermented yogurt uh, would work, like, for example, a soy yogurt or cashew yogurt. You could consider doing that. But then I thought, you know, I'd dig a little deeper. So I went and looked up fermented dairy foods and risk of cancer to see whether or not there was evidence that fermenting process itself conferred some sort of benefit. And indeed, I found this one paper from 2019, International Journal of Cancer, pretty reasonable journal. And what that study showed was that there was a statistical evidence of significantly decreased cancer risk associated with fermented dairy food intake. 
yogurt consumption was uh, had a decreased cancer risk in overall comparisons, and particularly uh, when they looked by cancer type, decreased cancer of the bladder, the colon, and the esophagus. Yogurt consumption, in other words, was quite beneficial in that setting. Why would this be? Well, for one thing, the bacteria that we use to make yogurt, which are Streptococcus thermophilus and Lactobacillus bulgaricus, are effective in test tube sort of situations of inhibiting the initiation of carcinogenesis. In other words, some of the metabolic byproducts of their existence actually have a protective effect and they actually stimulate the immune system. They modulate the microbiota, the other microbiota. Uh, They modulate the immune system. They actually improve gut barrier function, which probably uh, really reduces the amount of oxidative stress on the system because that gut barrier is what keeps the broken up bits of bacteria in the stomach or in the intestine. If those are splashing through that gut barrier, they're going to get to where the immune cells are. And the immune cells are going to say, oh, bacteria, intruder alert, and fire off a bunch of things to kill the bacteria. Of course, these are dead bacterial fragments, so oops. Plus, those things that they're firing off create a lot of oxidative stress and kind of friendly fire damage to the system. So colon cancer in particular, you would expect to see increases in a impaired gut barrier because of all the inflammatory looping that the gut's going to be doing. So they felt that uh, just the bacteria themselves being in the stomach had, you know, super, super beneficial effects that could be demonstrated. However, uh, in this large meta-analysis, which had more than 1.9 million people and 38,000 cancer cases, they did find a problem that fermented dairy foods might be associated with increased prostate cancer and increased renal cancer. It was a small effect, but definitely in the wake of this other study, I was really hoping that yogurt would be, you know, completely exonerated. Let's see, what did they find? They found that cheese, excuse me, I have I got that wrong. Yogurt consumption increased ovarian cancer risk. Cheese was the fermented dairy food that was associated with increased prostate cancer. And these were small numbers. These small effects may not be really clinically significant because there are so many benefits associated with fermented foods. So I think my take home on this is that you could try using a different type of yogurt if you like what you're doing, I don't want to discourage you at all from using fermented food. I do think that the benefits of the microbiome probably in the long term exceed the risks of the microbiome. And there's plenty of data. In fact, I started to dive down this trapdoor and then I realized, no, I'm going to wait because when I have to do some tape shows in July, and August. So I'm going to do the deep dive on the microbiome and prostate cancer then. But just to wedge your appetite, I've got one paper here that I want to share with you. This is a gut microbiome transplant study where they were looking at mice that were predisposed to develop prostate cancer. 
Uh, one of the things we do with prostate cancer is we lower the levels of androgens, that is to say testosterone and androstenedione, in the mice or humans, as far as that goes, we do the same thing. The testosterone is a growth hormone for the prostate cancer. So we take away the testosterone and for a while, the prostate cancer stalls and doesn't grow. But over time, we see the emergence of what's called castration-resistant prostate cancer. And there was a lot of debate about whether this is a mutation in the receptor for testosterone so that it mutates such that it sort of clicks into the on possession even though there's no testosterone present. And that was kind of the prevailing hypothesis until several years ago when researchers started playing around with gut microbiome transplants. And so this study, they looked at two different strains of mice that are prone to develop prostate cancer and two strains that harbored human prostate cancer cells. Presumably these had been inserted in them through a genetic process. As the prostate cancer developed, they followed it along. And then as the switch flipped and the castration resistance developed and they became resistance to the absence of testosterone, they found a big jump in two types, two different species of gut bacteria. And the characteristic of these gut bacteria are fascinating because they're capable of producing active androgens, active testosterone-like compounds in the gut by their own metabolism of our byproducts. So they were making testosterone and therefore very logical to think maybe the bacteria themselves are producing this castration resistance by making extra testosterone. Now they tried giving the mice antibiotic therapy shortly after the castration and that slowed things down quite a bit. So, you know, wiping out the microbiome, getting rid of those clones of bacteria. They also tried transplanting poop from mice that were already castration resistant with prostate cancer into the cancer-prone mice, and they found that those mice rapidly developed castration resistance. They tried taking human cancer patients who'd become castration resistant and putting that bacteria into the mice, and the same thing happened. So it's cross-species effect. And when they transplanted feces from human prostate cancer patients who were not, in fact, castration-resistant, who were still sensitive to the effects of androgen depletion, it delayed the development of this in the cancer-prone mice. So we got the information here that the lower levels of androgens that occur after castration or after the use of androgen-depleting therapies in humans may actually encourage growth of bacteria who are capable of producing gut microbes through some mechanism where the microbiome is apparently trying to compensate for the loss of the androgens, trying to replace the androgens, which is just, A, it it somehow knows and it's functioning as an adaptive mechanism, and it explains this castration resistance that has always been a little bit mysterious to us, But wow, what a concept that the microbiome actually has that kind of potential. Here we have an email from Anonymous in Santa Cruz. 
subject, the beer research you talked about last week. Hi, Dr. Don. Thank you for your show. I'm fascinated by the research you presented last week about how drinking a beer every day for a month replenishes a full microbiome, including non-alcoholic beer. I have two questions about this. Uh, Do you know if it matters what kind? It seems like there's a lot of different types out there. Would different ingredient with different ingredients. I don't normally drink beer and I would need a gluten-free variety. Do you think that matters? And did it say what kind they used? So I'll answer that question first before we go on to the next one. Actually, the thing I said on the program, just to clarify, was that it's not that it replenishes a full microbiome, but that it very greatly increased the microbiome diversity, whether or not there was alcohol in the beer. And part of that is largely, I think, because beer contains a lot of non-digested carbohydrate. The fact, the thing that makes it beer is that some of the carbohydrate has been turned into alcohol uh, by microorganisms. And the thing that makes it uh, different is which microorganisms are you using in the mix and what else are they making and a lot of the flavor and the nuance of Beer brewing comes from those minute differences and in, well, effectively, you're changing the prebiotics in the mash. That's what you're feeding the bugs. So if you alter the mash, you alter the the end product. So once you've made the beer, you can remove the alcohol, and that's what non-alcoholic beer is. And it you know has trace amounts of alcohol and similar to the way that Decaf coffee has trace amounts of caffeine. So the microbiome diversity is a direct reflection of dietary diversity. So if you are feeding people a mash of diverse grain products that have been fermented, you're going to be feeding them a lot of variability that will further uh, add to the diversity of their microbiome and There's a strong feeling that a diverse microbiome has more resilience and is more able to resist disease and less likely to trigger the immune system and all of the things that if you are a regular listener, you've heard about me discuss related to the microbiome. Getting back to Anonymous's second question. Okay, now I'm torn. I have chronic candida and with this, a yeast intolerance. It's not fully active. I've done full protocols for it on and off for decades, and now just need antifungal supplements whenever I eat fruits or a lot of carbs and or whole grains. How would you square these two? And then he has a secondary question. Uh, maybe, hopefully, the yeasts would act like Saccharomyces boulardii does. As long as I'm asking you to do a deep dive on this, do you imagine it would be beneficial or a waste of money to do a month of the S. boulardii at the same time as drinking non-alcoholic beer every evening for that month. I appreciate your thoughts on all of this. Thank you for your time, intelligence, and warmth. I want to thank you, Anonymous, for a nice, complicated question. Let's go on to that part two. There's no one-size-fits-all advice. There's generalities, right? A Mediterranean diet is a really good diet, and in most people is the healthiest diet to eat. However, if you for example, have gluten intolerance, then you would have to eat a modified Mediterranean diet because there are certain grains that you would absolutely want to be staying away from. That doesn't mean those grains aren't in general healthy grains. It means that you have a reaction against them that 
is best managed with full-on avoidance, right? So you have to individualize sizing. It's just like if you buy, I'm very into my wardrobe and my clothing. I love a nicely tailored suit. If I buy something off the rack, it's not going to fit as well as if I have something made to measure, right? Or have something altered to measure. And so all of these health type devices need to be put into context. So what is chronic candida exactly? Well, in my view, it's probably the most widely misdiagnosed condition. It's often framed as you have too much yeast in your gut, you're yeast sensitive, it's causing your rashes, your joint pain, uh, your GI symptoms, your brain fog, you fill in the blank. And I think that most of chronic candida is actually something else. I don't think it's just candida. I think it's a dysbiosis, multiple bad actors, both fungal and bacterial and debatably possibly also viral. But thank God that we haven't gotten good at analyzing that yet because I think my brain would explode if I had to keep track of the viruses as well right now. Anyway, your microbiome is a product of, first of all, your mother's microbiome, which comes to you literally in the lymphatics and through the placenta. And then at birth, if you're born through a vagina, you pick up a lot of bacteria that way. If your mom has a great microbiome, you got a good inoculation. If she doesn't, well, then you didn't either. And so you're already starting a little bit behind. You get people with a strong family history of allergies. Mom had allergies. Grandma had allergies. You get sisters, cousins, aunts, uncles. Everybody's got allergies. That's a bad microbiome family as well as maybe some adverse DNA, but definitely the protective microbiome isn't there. Then you have stress, just your your everyday stress. Some people's stomachs stop making acid when they're under stress and they eat. They don't produce enough acid in their stomach. They still digest their food, but they don't kill the bacteria and the yeast that are on and in the food. And of course, you know, if if you have ripe fruit, that's going to have some mold and some yeast in it because part of the ripening process is the fruit going slightly off. You've got diet, you've got whether your digestive uses are produced, you've got, you know, exactly what you're eating. You met, you seem to be a person who probably isn't making a lot of acid. So maybe we'd look at inputs and add acid, add apple cider vinegar with meals, maybe confirm the presence of living yeast in your stool because a lot of times this candida diagnosis, I've seen people come in and they haven't been actually tested or they have very low levels, and it's probably not the core problem. I want to comment on the throwing espoulardi at something. Throwing probiotics, be they fungal or bacterial, at a existing dysbiosis is not going to work very well. It's like you've got a field of weeds and grass and rye and all sorts of other things. They've they've got root systems, they are well-adapted, planted in that field, and you're going to take some seeds and throw them on top of that mat that's supporting your typical vacant lot, you know, microclime. You're not going to change the vacant lot into a flower garden because there's no place for those roots to get hold. There's no way for them to establish their own kind of structure. These are called biofilms. So in a bacterial setting, the biofilms are hospitable to certain species. Even if you throw other species out there, they aren't going to thrive because it isn't the right biofilm. 
So a lot of times what we end up having to do is actually fix the garden, you know, till everything under, put some kind of weed antagonist, perhaps using, I use a lot of botanicals like thyme oil, rosemary, oregano. And what I'm doing with these is I'm attempting to disadvantage the bad actors so that the good actors can get a foothold. And then as they get a foothold, they grow their own microbiome. You can sometimes rebuild this thing over the course of about six to eight weeks and make a really fundamental difference in all sorts of things, you know, very far outside of what you would expect, like skin and nasal congestion and even brain fog. So I would say that what you really need is you need a functional medicine doctor to help you with your microbiome and that the chronic candida is a misinterpretation of the data. It's not wrong. It's just not complete. So as far as the non-alcoholic beer is concerned, uh, I think you could certainly try that, but I don't think that candida is your core issue in the first place. I don't think the Saccharomyces boulardii is going to do much for the reasons I've just explained. Uh, Let's see, we have a caller, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, move over there. Uh, My name is Nick from Santa Cruz. Hi, Nick. What can I do for you? Uh, Yeah, so I am 67 years old, and I recently got uh, I. Flutes and flashes, and then I went directly to see my doctor to make sure it wasn't anything serious. But I was wondering, um, this is just one or two questions, but I was wondering, um, is there anything from a functional medicine standpoint that might help me out? With the floaters, you mean? I'm not quite sure what, what, the, what our goal is here. Well, the goal would be, uh, well, I know that the, as you age, the gelatinous material in the eye uh, breaks down and becomes more liquid. I'm just wondering, is there anything um, that I could do to try to uh, inhibit that, you know, from either diet or, or... Well, in terms of the the vitreous humor, which is the name, the lovely, lovely kind of sounds, very alchemical, I think. Yes, the vitreous humors are contracting, which is what they're doing. It's, it's basically goo, and the goo is getting a little harder. It's actually shrinking. As it shrinks... It pulls in areas where it's kind of gotten attached to the retina, and the pulling can give you little sparkles at night when you cough. Have you noticed that? Like if you if you have a cold and you're coughing at night, you'll get like little flashes of light kind of in the peripheral vision? I've noticed that. Like sometimes when I'm driving uh, at night, just turning my head mm-hmm. a little bit. So yeah. So you're, you're actually tugging on the nerve of your retina. It's triggering... A nerve impulse, which the brain is interpreting as light, but there isn't any light. It's actually mechanical energy that's being, you know, understood to be a light impulse because that's what the retina is supposed to be responding to. It is benign. If a person has a very big eyeball, like they're very nearsighted, if you're nearsighted, you've got a big eyeball, you can, with, with these tugs, because the retina is thinner, you can actually tear the retina. So... It's important for people who are nearsighted and have this phenomenon to get themselves an Amsler grid, which is just a checkerboard pattern that you look at every day. Cover up one eye and you look at it and you just make sure all the lines are straight. Because if you if you start to get a retina tear, the lines won't be straight in that eye. They'll be they'll kind of curve and what you're seeing is you're seeing the curve of the retina where it should be flat. 
So like a funhouse mirror sort of effect, right? But just in one area. So when you, if you should see that, that immediately needs to go to the eye doctor because they can laser that down. They can thumbtack it to keep the, the tear from enlarging. It's kind of like a run in a stocking. You just don't yank on it and, you know, put a little nail polish across it. You probably don't wear, not wear stockings. But uh, anyway, there'll be people out there nodding the head and know what I mean. This is the important piece in terms of preventative medicine that I want to be sure I put out there to you. Using the stuff that keeps the retina healthy, which are all of the vitamins and uh, most of them are carotenoids, which are related to the vitamin A that makes our eye pigments that allow us to see. So if you use lutein and lycopene and uh, gastroxanthin, which is what makes flamingos pink, you know, there's there are all these colored compounds that are really beneficial for the retina and keep it resilient and healthy. You would want to do that. You would want to take those. You will still get the shrinkage of the vitreous, and eventually this will stop happening because the whole thing will come loose and have detached. It'll just spin, and that's when the floaters will actually get better because they won't stay in one place. Right now, as long as the eye is tethered, that contraction has created little coagulated areas that bend the light and act like shadows. If you're looking at a white wall, you might be bothered by them. And that will get better as you age. So I can I can tell you that. And meanwhile, this process of the eyeball restructuring itself to accommodate the, the smaller vitreous typically is about a three to five year process after which the, the floaters get much better. Okay, well, that's good news. And I'm glad to know about this uh, uh, grid. Uh, I, I don't have, I'm not sure, I don't think I'm short-sighted. I, I had 20-20 vision until I got floaters in my right eye. Damn you, I'm so jealous. <laughs> 20 to 30. <laughs> well, okay, so the one last thing on the floaters. There's one sitting, which is the swarm of bees, or, the, you know, if, when you've, if you've ever seen a swarm of bees, yes. you know they gets kind of buzzing around, and it's very erratic motion. If you get a swarm of bees in your eyeball, that's blood. You've broken a blood vessel, and you've got to get to a doctor. So that's oh. that's not going to happen. It's extremely rare. It mainly happens to diabetics. But it is important for everyone to be aware that that is a, you know, yes, you will be in the ER for five hours. Yes, go be in the ER for five hours because you need to get this attended to. It's one of those. <laughs> yeah, I understand. I don't like going to the doctor, but uh, when I read about it, I, I thought I better because I only have a few days at this serious to get fixed. Exactly, um, and that's exactly right. You have to know when, know when to hold them, know when to fold them. You, you have to know when to drop everything and get yourself ruled out for whatever terrible possibility has just emerged. And hopefully, it's a false alarm, which is what we want. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good segue to my second question. Uh, I have mild sleep apnea with. Uh, a reading of about 28 AHI. And um, so I wanted to find out a little bit more if you could flesh it out. Maybe, you know, uh, maybe some cautions I, I have or treatments. And I mean, I know there's treatment and so forth, but I'm not sure I want to go that path. Yeah, I, um, under, I understand. How old did you say you are? 67. All right. 
you're entering the age where your tissue elasticity starts to change. I, I basically make the joke that the stuff that should be tight gets loose and the stuff that should be loose gets tight. So your oral structures are tending to collapse in the direction of gravity at night. And when you relax your muscles, your tongue and your palate can kind of collapse down and block your airway. That is going to happen when, if you think about the forces of gravity and where your tongue is relative to the back of your throat, if you're lying on your side, you're not going to have much apnea. And so people who lie on, who can train themselves to lie on their side, who have mild sleep apnea, generally do not need CPAP. Some people, uh, there's a lot of nasal congestion. And in those individuals, those little things that you put on your nose that are called snorries help you breathe. But if you're blocking with your tongue, obviously the stuff that's coming in the nose has to go get past the tongue back there in the throat. So it isn't going to help for that. There are some things that dental appliances and stuff that advance the jaw. People with with a jaw that's set backwards a little bit will sometimes benefit from these. I've had a couple of patients who've had the surgery where their palate is just literally carved away with a laser beam so that their palate doesn't occlude. They're at increased risk of aspiration pneumonia because if they vomit, they may not be able to protect their airway. But aside from that, it's a surgical cure without having to reset the entire jaw. And then, you know, we have CPAP, which is, you know, it's a technology that I hope very soon we will be looking at and laughing and saying, oh, we were so primitive back in the 20s. But uh, so far, that's where we're at. I've tried using acupuncture. I haven't really had any success getting sleep apnea to improve with acupuncture. So my best advice for you is get uh, one of those smartwatches that will give you a sort of indirect reading whether your oxygen is dropping. I've got a, what have I got? I've got some kind of Fitbit. It's the, one of the big square ones. I There are so many versions. I can't tell you which one I've got, but it does, I want monitor my sleep and it does give me this nice little curve. They're using some sort of extrapolated surrogate marker. I mean, they're not measuring my blood oxygen, but they're measuring probably my heart rate and the beat to beat variability and there's probably a pattern of that that correlates with low oxygen. And so it gives you a clue. You can use something like that and then change your, your sleeping position. And then you could take a Benadryl one night and see how much worse you get. And because that's going to make you sleep deeper. And then you could say, oh, that really w- aggravated it. I think I'll probably not do that for sleeping. And, you know, too much alcohol sedatives, things like that will aggravate the sleep apnea. But if you can train yourself to sleep on one side or the other, if it's only mild, that's probably going to get you back to baseline. And of course, weight loss, if you're heavy, lose some weight. Yeah. Okay. I see. Well, that's great. And then uh, I just had a third question. Uh, it's related to my wife. And uh, she was, when we're driving, sometimes she reaches into the back of the car and, and picks up a, a heavy item, you know, food or something, and she was doing that, and then her shoulder started hurting, and it was up near the left shoulder, up near the top, right about where you would get a, a, uh, a vaccine booster, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. and so it's been about four weeks now, and, and it doesn't seem to get that much better, and I'm, I'm wondering um, what might be the issue and some um, ways to uh, try to fix that without, you know, any 
of natural, um, you know, naturally just going through your life these days. Sure. Uh, all right. So let's start with the, the top three things that she may have done. Um, one of them, the most common one, is actually called rotator cuff impingement syndrome, or, and then that's a spectrum disease. You get all the way from, it goes all the way into rotator cuff tear, but a lot of times there's a bursitis in there, so there's a shock absorber pad that gets irritated by doing exactly what you said. It gets squeezed because you're loading the arm and you're holding it in a position where where the bones are tight together and you basically crush the bursa and the bursa is unhappy with you. And then just regular activity can kind of keep it rolling. Uh, so the test for this is you stick your hand straight out and then you pretend you're in a gladiator movie. And you know how the, the emperor holds his arm out um, and the thumb is up and then he turns the thumb down and the crowd goes, ooh, right? So you want to put your arm directly out to your side at 90 degrees, thumb up, and then rotate the thumb down. And if you do that and it hurts, that's impingement. That's the rotator cuff. That's what's going on there. The other thing she may have is she may have a deltoid or a biceps tendon issue. Maybe bending her elbow and using that bicep as she lifts the, the heavy thing over. And again, tendonitis can definitely last for weeks or months. And that's going to have a sore spot very distinctly on the ropey thing, kind of just to the front. If you drew a line, okay, from your earlobe down across your shoulder and down your arm, that just in front of that line, there's a ropey thing, and that's your biceps tendon. And if that's sore, then what she wants to be doing is icing that and taking an ice cube and rubbing back and forth perpendicular to the rope and that will help with the tendonitis and also stretch, making sure she stretches her bicep, maybe, you know, letting it dangle with a weight on it to try to stretch out the muscle. So those are the two, the two most likely things. And I would bet on rotator cuff based on your description of the mechanism. Um, yeah, she had said that, that it's mostly when she, um, it may be the tendonitis, you know, as you were talking, she was saying, um, that is more in the front of that line that goes down. Right. Yeah, well, I, I've got that myself, actually, from bad posture at one of my computer stations. So, because I shrug and while I'm typing on that one, and, I, and so I'm definitely using that tendon too much, and I just have figured that out over the last few uh, months and have modified my behavior, and the pain has gone away. So i got to go. Thank you very Thank much you for so your call. Thank you. All right, tune in next week. Bye-bye. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans. Or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.